Our scripture text comes from the book of Joshua chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, pick 12 men from the people, one man per tribe. Command them, pick up 12 stones from right here in the middle of the Jordan, where the feet of the priests had been firmly planted. Bring them across with you and put them down in the camp where you are staying tonight. Joshua called for the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one man per tribe. Joshua said to them, cross over into the middle of the Jordan, up to the Lord, up to the Lord your God's chest. Each of you lift up a stone on his shoulders to match the number of tribes of the Israelites. This will be a symbol among you. For the future, in the future, your children may ask, what do these stones mean to you? And then you will tell them that the water of the Jordan was cut off before the Lord's covenant chest. When it crossed over the Jordan, the water of the Jordan was cut off. These stones are to be an enduring memorial for the Israelites. The Israelites did exactly what Joshua ordered. They lifted up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, matching the number of the tribes of Israelites, exactly as the Lord had said to Joshua. They brought them over to the camp and put them down there. Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan where the feet of the priests had stood while carrying the covenant chest. And they are still there today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was a pretty exciting time for the people of Israel. Think about it, if you will, and and put yourselves in their position. Here they are. They're standing on the banks of the Jordan River. They have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, they have been without a home. For 40 years, they have been moving from one place to another, camp to camp, location to location, never able to set down roots, never able to plant a garden, never able to to build houses. They had been a people on the move for at least 40 years. For 40 years, they had waited for the fulfillment of the promise of the Exodus, right? You remember the Exodus? They're slaves in Egypt where they had been enslaved for 400 years. They cry out to God, God save us, God hears them, God brings them out through the Red Sea to Sinai. God makes a covenant to be with them. God promises to give them a land and God had promised to have been given the people a land for, for generations. Since, since Abraham, God had said, I will make you a great nation, I will give you a land, they will inhabit this land, they will be numerous. The people had been waiting a long, long time for what was happening on this particular day. They had been waiting because God had said, you must wait now until you enter the promised land. But here they were on, on, the, on the banks of the river Jordan, looking over from, from the wilderness of wandering into the place of the promise, into the promised land. I would imagine they were pretty excited, don't you think? It was nothing but possibility from there. Right, the, the old, the old had. Oh, my sash is slipping. <laughs> the old had been passed behind, and they saw only this wonderful future of God's provision and care and guidance in a land that was their own. They were to be a people with a land, and they were ready to cross over. And so the people prepared, and, and God gave, gave instructions on what they were to do, how they were to prepare themselves, what were they were to look like, and, and how things were supposed to go as, as they were getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. 
Specifically, God said there's to be men. The Levites are going to take the, the Ark of the Covenant, or as, as our translation puts it, the chest of the covenant, and they are to, to take it, put it upon their shoulders, and they're going to wade into the Jordan River. And when they do, something cool is going to happen. So the people prepare, they, they break camp and they get ready to, to get on the move, to, to enter into the land of the promise, to, to kind of just fulfill all that God had told them was going to happen and what they were going to do. And, and, and the Ark of the Covenant went in front of them and, and the Levites waded into the Jordan River, which was at flood stage, by the way. Right? The Jordan River is not, a, it's not, it's not the Columbia, but... In the rainy season, when it's wet and the things are coming out of the mountains and everything's running through it, it's, it's a significant stream. It's not something you would want to cross. But, but, but as the, the Levites wade in, and, and you can imagine them, they're, they're, their feet are touching the water, and then they're wading in, and then they stand in the middle. And when they stand and get to the middle of the Jordan River, something happens. Something that within the history of Israel, the people are not totally unprepared for. When the Levites get into the middle, the river dries up. Or, or as, as Joshua puts it, uh, the, the waters pile up upstream, even gives a place where the, pile, the water's piled up upstream. The net effect is the water is dammed, the water stops flowing, and the people are able to cross on dry land. It feels like God has done that before. If the Lord brought the people of Israel into the wilderness through the waters of the Red Sea, the people exit the wilderness through the waters of the Jordan. And the waters pile up. And the people file across one after another, clan after clan, tribe after tribe, from the wilderness of wandering into the land of the promise. What a wonderful and celebrate, celebratory day that must have been. I imagine there were a few whoops and cheers. Now, some of us aren't whoopers or cheers. I'm not a whooper. But I imagine there, but some of us are, right? But I imagine there were more than one shouts of praise to God about what God was doing, right? We, we know that when the people came through the Red Sea, right, they were singing songs. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea, like wonderful, amazing things that God has done. And the people are celebrating because God has done this. And they know that God has done this. They've had 40 years to figure out that it was God who did this and not someone else. That it was Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who had done this in them and for them. That, that, that they were not really good at doing it themselves. And that in the wilderness they were lost and alone, but God led and God guided them. And God gave them assurance that he would walk with them. And so just as he had walked with them in the wilderness, God led them across the Jordan into the promised land. But before the people crossed over, however, God had given some instructions to Joshua, right? God gave instructions on how it was to happen, on when the Levites were to go and when the people were to go and what God was going to do. But, but God said to them, Joshua, when you, when you get there, when the waters dry up, when all the people have come across, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick 12 men, one from each tribe. And I want you to tell them that they're to get a, a stone from, from the middle of the Jordan River, from the place where the, where the Levites are standing, from right there in the middle, the deepest part, right? The deepest part of the, of the river where it would flow the deepest, where it would be the most dangerous. And I want you to take, take stones, one for each person. And I want you to take them out and carry them with you to your next camp. 
And I want you to set them up there. And, and, so, and so here it goes. The, 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 the people are, are going in, they're going across. And kind of as this picture says, there's, there's 12 guys who are, who are picking up stones. I, I don't know how big these stones were, but I bet they were big. Right? When you tell someone to pick up a stone, they're going to pick up the biggest one they can carry. It's just how it works. To cross over. And they carried on to their next camp, which is at Gigal. Gilgal. And it says that when they get to their next camp and they've crossed over the Jordan River, a couple things happen. First, the Jordan returns to its flood stage. As soon as the Levites step out of the water, the waters come rushing back down, roaring. It's now an uncrossable river once again. It seems like God has done something there. But as the people get into camp and as they file in and everyone gets settled, Joshua calls the 12 men to him and he says, set those stones up, build an altar, build a memorial. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if it was 12 big stones set in a row or in a circle or if he made a cairn. I don't know what, but it was something that was different enough from the landscape around it so that when you pass by, you notice someone did something there, right? Those were put there for a reason. They weren't just thrown out of the heavens or tumbled down from the mountains. They, they were there and they were river rocks in the middle of the desert. Something happened there. He says, erect, erect a monument so that when your children pass by, they'll ask, what do these stones mean? You see, time does something to us. We can be happy and excited about what God has done and about the things that have happened in our life, but time does something that skews our memories of those things. And oftentimes, left to our own devices, we remember the wonderful and great ways in which we acted and forget the wonderful and great ways in which others helped and or caused us to do well. It was well known in the history of Israel, and I'm going to say the history of Israel, but you know what? We do it too. That the further and further they got away from these things of God that God had done that were, were, were no other than the work of God in their midst, it became more about look at how wonderful it was for us rather than look at what God has done. We need reminders sometimes that we did not get here on our own. That we are not who we are simply by our own ingenuity, our own intelligence, our own bootstrap effort. Many of you, all of you as a matter of fact, have ingenuity, have intelligence, and have put in bootstrap effort. But we are not where we are, particularly as the people of God, because of us. It's because God helped us or more accurately because God did this for us. The history of Israel up until this point is the God who acts on behalf of a people. Right? So we, we hear about God first in the garden. I won't go through the whole Bible, but we'll start there because that's where it starts. A God who acts for, he creates this thing. He, he puts people in and he says, look what I have created. Tend it, be in it, walk with me, have relationship with me, eat of everything. And even when humanity messed up, God still maintained relationship. God says, it's going to be different. 
but we'll still be together. When things got out of control, God walked with Noah. Throughout the history of the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God shows up. And not just simply to help, not to give a nudge or, or, or just a little bit of, you know, a little bit of extra oomph. God is the one who does these things. Who does these things in and for the, the patriarchs and the people of Israel. God brings them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And there was nothing that they did that affected that. It was God. And it was God who brought them through the wilderness. The wilderness has very little food. God fed them. God led them to water. Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. And, and though they were not a people, though they were a people who had been enslaved and then nomadic, God says, I am going to give you a land. And the language that is used is you will eat from vineyards you did not plant and live in houses that you did not build. Like this, this idea of God saying, it's not you. I am doing this for you. It is because of me that these things happen. And God knows that while things are bright as the people cross into the promised land, things are always wonderful when we are living into the promise and seeing it perhaps fulfilled for the first time. But, but the more we go through it, the more we forget the God who made this possible, the God who did this, the God who walks alongside. And so Joshua says, Put those stones up so that every time you cross by and your kids ask you, what do these stones mean? You can look at them and say, God did this here. Imagine, I mean, the, the, the author of, of Joshua says that the stones are there to this day. I looked it up just to confirm. I Googled it. There are no standing stones still at Gilgal that were there however many thousand years ago this happened. Okay. But the author writes that, that at least when he is writing it, in his time, when he is penning these things, there is still a marker at that place that people could pass by and say, what does that mean? I mean, we do this all the time. We build statues, don't we? Not always to the best people, not always to the people we want to remember thousands of years later, but we build statues and we walk by and, and our kids might say, Who, who's that? And we say, oh, this is, I don't know, we have a statue to Sacagawea, right? In our park. Oh, she, Lewis and Clark would have been lost without her, right? We say what was done. It, it, we, we build monuments, some good some of the things we don't necessarily want to remember. And we pass by and we say, what's that for? That's what history is. It's these monuments, these stones that say, what, what happened here? But, but what, what Joshua, what God wants the people of, of Israel to remember is, is that they have something tangible, something touchable that they can look at and say, what happened here? So that it's an, it's an, it's an opportunity to say what God has done. And what the content of that promise is. God did this. We were slaves. We were wandering. But God did this. I mean, the fact that, that Jewish people still celebrate the Passover, how many thousands of years later? And they say, this is what God did for us. 
right? It's a touchstone. It's something that helps them remember this is a point in time where God acted decisively and we don't want to forget who did this. For it was not our effort or our might. So when you came in and I left mine in my seat, I hope you all got a rock, a stone of sorts. I'll grab mine real quick. If you didn't get one, there's probably some in the foyer. And I gave you this stone for a reason. I mean, it's not special. It's literally river rock from the front of our church. But in the next couple of minutes, what I'd like us to do is just take some time to think. What's a time in your life where you look back? It may be recent past. It may be today. I don't know. It may have been 20 years ago and say, God did something here. And I want you to just think about that. And I want you to look at the stone and think, this stone can represent that for me today. Something touchable. Something tangible. Something, I mean, it's not, it's not special. It's a river rock. It, mine's not particularly pretty. Looks like some conglomerate. I don't... But I can look at this and I, and I can start to remember. I can start to think of. And, and I could give you some things if you want that I could think of if it helps you get going. Ten years ago today, I started... Well, tomorrow is actually what it was. I think it was the 6th of February, that Sunday. I started the senior pastor of this church. God did something in me to get me here. And I don't know if it was good for you all, but it was good for me. So I can look at that and go, God did something. There are points in my life like that one where I can look. And that's one of the points in my life where if you were to ask me, did God speak to you? I can say as audibly as I've ever heard. I can say that. And it's God, not me. I, I put these stones in front as a way of looking at it, but, but we as a church have some touchstones like I, that I was thinking about this week. You know, I think about how in, in 1953, uh, Cheryl, you can tell me if I'm wrong on the date here. The church was founded in 51, but in 53, I believe, we met for the first time in this place, in this building. Cheryl was there. There are touchstones for me like that. In 69 was the first Sunday we were in this area right here, in this new sanctuary. As I've been thinking about this sermon, I've been thinking about people. I'm going to call you out again, Cheryl, but Daryl and Cheryl have been here since the beginning. And I am grateful for their legacy. For when I see them, I remember the legacy with which I am charged as the pastor of this church. I don't know if you all realize this. The ministry of this church did not start 10 years ago when I got here. (laughs) Started many, 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 many years before that. And we are just part of that legacy. And God did that back then. And there are various points in history that I can look at for some of you long timers who have been here that I can say, 
I am part of your faithfulness and what God did through you. And even you new timers who are brand new, maybe your first Sunday, I can look at that and say, I am grateful for the ministry of this church. But it's not me. This church isn't what it is because of me. I mean, I I hope you all know that. If you don't, now you do. It's because of God working in us together through history, through time. When I pull up to this building, I look at this building and I go, it's a touchstone for me. What has God done though? All the stories you all could tell of what God has done in this building. Those are touchstones for us. So I've just given you one. I've got lots, 12 here, but just one. What's a touchstone for you? Where you can look back and say, God did this, and I want to remember what God was doing in that moment. That it was not my might, not my power, but the Spirit of God at work in, around, and through me, and in the community of which I am a part. So that if someone were to see this on my mantle place, it's an ordinary rock, and say, why do you have a piece of decorative rig of a rock in a prominent place in your home? You can say, well, let me tell you about what God did. What's your touchstone? Just take a minute or two to think about that today. Silences. I think we need to take more time to just be silent and reflective sometimes. Um, Our real left turn here, but our song that we are focusing on this morning. um, If you haven't been with us, we're we're in a series called Sound Doctrine, where we are looking at some of the worship songs that we sing. Understanding some of the biblical and theological themes behind it, um, and then putting that into practice, um, looking at why we sing the songs we do. And, and the song that we are singing this morning is sort of a, a reminder to remember. You have to remember to remember. Um, it's, it's not necessarily a, it would not be a stone of remembrance, um, but its lyrics are kind of a way to remind us um, of who we are singing to and why we are singing to the God that we gather to praise and worship. I would imagine that most of us have probably heard this song um, or at least heard of this song. It's been around longer, I can almost guarantee. It's been around longer than anybody in this sanctuary. In fact, because it is the year 2023 now, it is officially 100 years old. Um, The lyrics of Great is Thy Faithfulness were written back in 1923 by a man named Thomas Chisholm. Um, and, and 
Chisholm grew up in Kentucky. He spent most of his time on the farm um, and writing poetry, as one does. Um, and he spent five years as the editor of a local paper. Um, I feel like that's kind of been a common theme throughout the songs that we're looking at, um, some of the older ones. He was an editor for the, the local paper. Um, and at the age of 26 is when he gave his life to Christ. And it was then that he turned these poems that he had been writing into hymns. Um, he began to, to be more intentional about the words that he was writing being something that honored and praised God. And he sent many of them to Fanny Crosby, if any of you know that name. She, uh, she's one of the most popular hymn writers in history, dubbed the Queen of Gospel Hymns. Um, he would send his, his poems off to Fanny Crosby to get some feedback, to, to get critiques. Um, and after his ordination in 1903, he served as minister to a, um, in the Methodist Church for one year before poor health caused him to retire from that. He moved. He became an insurance salesman. Um, but he wrote this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, after all of that had transpired, after um, health issues had gone on, after his mother had passed away and he had moved. And in 1923, he wrote this poem, Great is Thy Faithfulness, as um, a way of writing about God's faithfulness over his lifetime. And then he sent it to a man by the name of William Runyon, who was in Kansas, who was affiliated with the Moody Bible Institute, if you've heard of that, um, and, and Hope Publishing Company. And Runyon then took this poem and he set it to music, and it was published that same year by Hope Publishing Company, and it quickly became hugely popular amongst um, church, local church groups. But then it really exploded in popularity when Dr. William Henry Houghton of the Moody Bible Institute, um, and then shortly after, and perhaps more famously, uh, a man by the name of Billy Graham used this song in his, some of his um, services, in his crusades that he, he did. And one of Chisholm's friends at the time, Charles Gabriel, he said this about Thomas. His aim in writing is to magnify the word, incorporating as much scripture, either literally or in paraphrase, as possible, and to avoid any flippant or sentimental themes, choosing subjects from the inexhaustible storehouse of the Bible. I love that description, the inexhaustible storehouse of the Bible. But scripture was the foundation of his writings, of his poems, and, and then his hymns as, as they were added to music. Um, and it was on scripture that he built these poems and hymns for which, um, for him, were a way of lightening the load during the hardest points of his life. And he has this quote, Having been led for a part of my life through some difficult paths, I have sought to gather from such experiences material out of which to write hymns of comfort and cheer for those similarly, similarly circumstanced. So it, it's, it's this reason that caused Chisholm to write, Great is thy faithfulness. During, during the hard moments of his life, he wanted to write hymns and poems for everyone to experience the cheer and comfort that doesn't come through the circumstances of life, but that comes through the Lord, the God who we follow. And so the phrase that this song is named for, Great is thy faithfulness, actually comes from um, a book of the Bible that is very similar to this idea. Um, I'm guessing many of us don't spend a whole lot of devotional time, personal devotional time reading, um, but it's from the book of Lamentations. This is a collection of poems that are very mournful and sorrowful. 
Um, and, and while spend, like I said, spending much time in the book of Lamentations is probably pretty rare, um, I'd imagine that if you have heard or read from it, it would be the passage that we're going to look at in just a minute. Um, but these, are, these verses that we're going to read are verses of hope and of solace in this time of pain and suffering in the middle of this book that is called Lamentations, Lament, recognizing those hard times of life, those moments when we come to the end of our own strength. But if we only take these verses of hope and solace out of this larger book, and we say, oh, this is, this is where we can find our hope, but we don't look at the larger picture of a book titled Lamentations, then I think we're missing the full picture and the full purpose of this book. So we're going to look a little bit at the book of Lamentations before we jump into it. Um, but Lamentations was written by and for a group of people who had just gone through some pretty significant personal, spiritual, and social trauma. Um, the people of Israel, who, who we, Pastor Mike just introduced us, introduced us to today, um, in Joshua 4, setting up these stones of remembrance, they had just seen, literally seen what God could do. And they were, remember, they, they were setting up these stones of remembrance as a way to remember later on what God has done for this people group. Well, as one does, um, they got distanced from those memories. And generation after generation um, fell into this cycle of turning away from God. And so while they, their entrance into the promised land and, and quite a few years in the promised land had been great, there was unfaithfulness in that covenant relationship with God. The prophets had warned for hundreds of years prior what might happen if they continued on in, this, in their, their wicked ways and their ways of turning away from the Lord, and that day had arrived. And they watched as the Babylonians smashed the walls of Jerusalem, the holy city. They burned down the temple. They knocked down houses in the city, and they executed the royal family. And so everything that they felt they had been promised, that had been, then been fulfilled, this promised land and, and time that they felt they were living in, everything that they relied upon for security and comfort and identity and hope in the future, and even the sense of God's presence in their lives, it was all wiped out. It had been taken from them. And this life that seemed to be blessed and full of hope and promise now seemed to be rather cruel and painful and meaningless and hopeless. And God's people are then sent into exile and left wondering if God had remembered his promises to them. The exile again fulfilled these centuries of prophetic warnings, hundreds of years of tradition and culture and history was destroyed in a very short time. And the book of Lamentations comes out of this time of destruction and pain. And it provides us with a really raw and honest um, reflection of what the people were going through emotionally. They felt as, as though they had lived through this great tragedy, and they had the destruction of, again, what they found their security and their comfort and the presence of God in. And so Lamentations is this collection of five poems that move from really great and horrible loss and recognizing that and recognizing their part in that and the personal shame that comes with that. And it moves 
very slowly and just a small part towards this hope for renewal. But this movement is one of both the, their personal feelings as well as their communal feelings as, as the, the group of the Israelites. And so this expectation was that they would, these poems would be recited by people groups gathered together um, as they expressed this great sorrow over the loss of their identity. And these poems enabled them to then confess that God had dealt with them justly, recognized their own part in the matter, and in doing so, be able to find this strength to bear this burden of great woe without falling into deep despair. The words of Lamentations are intended to help people somewhat learn a lesson from the past, um, while at the same time retaining this faith in God, even in the face of overwhelming disaster. It's this expression of grief that allowed for the faithful survivors of of all of these happenings um, to come to terms with this disaster that they had just experienced. And so these poems and songs, they point the way back to repentance, back to faith, and they stir up this hope in God's mercy. So in light of how they likely would have been read originally, I'm going to have us read them this morning, collectively. Um, So we're going to read them out loud in unison together um, from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. The memory of my suffering and homelessness is bitterness and poison. I can't help but remember and am depressed. I call all this to mind. Therefore, I will wait. Certainly, the faithful love of the Lord has not ended. Certainly, God's compassion isn't through. They are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I think the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I'll wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the person who seeks him. It's good to wait in silence for the Lord's deliverance. So these, these verses, again, are, they're rather hope-filled, right? It's, it's not difficult for us to read them, maybe. But they come amidst this larger picture of death and destruction and personal sorrow and grief and shame. And these first two verses, um, they do kind of reflect that. The memory of my suffering and homelessness is bitterness and poison. I can't help but remember and am depressed. So twice here, the author of Lamentations, many people think it's Jeremiah, um, but there's no clear evidence that that is the case. So I'm just going to reference the author of Lamentations. um, Twice here, uses this idea of remembering. He speaks of um, their memory and how they can't help but to remember. This memory does not happen as he gazes at this, these stones of remembrance. It does not happen as, as they look upon these moments in the past where God's faithfulness has been. This memory is full of suffering, of homelessness, of bitterness, of poison, of deep depression. The author cannot seem to escape the memory of the people's unfaithfulness, the collapse of their security and their comfort, their identity, their hope. This memory is inescapable. 
He does not have the ability to forget or to move on. And then our translation says, I call all this to mind. So just as the author cannot remember, or sorry, cannot help but to remember this incredibly deep and real pain, he also remembers, he calls to mind something that is equally deep and real, which is hope. And verse 21 serves as kind of a hinge point here. I call all this to mind, therefore I will wait. But why, why is he willing to wait? And what is he waiting for? Well, willing to wait because it hasn't always been this way. And the suffering isn't going to last forever. But resting in our grief is an important step in all of this. Resting in this deep depression. It's not a place that we want to stay, but it is a place that we need to recognize it's okay to be here. Because healing can come out of that. It can be healthy to create this space for lament and mourning. But as Paul says, we don't grieve as people who do not have hope. Because hope is what can come out of this grief. Hope is reborn in that grief. And at our deepest points, we can say it is impossible to escape the pain and the suffering of this world. And therefore, I will wait. And it's in this waiting that we remember that we can finally pick our head up and we can turn back to these stones, these stones of remembrance of how God has proven himself faithful time and time and time again, whether it's in our personal lives, our family lives, our friend lives, this local church body, the larger church, we can remember God's faithfulness time and time again. In our waiting, we remember God's faithfulness across the generations, across the many days of our own lives. And then the author says, certainly the faithful love of the Lord has not ended. Certainly God's compassion isn't through. They are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love this translation that they start with the word certainly. There is no way that we can, that the the God that we put our faith in has given up on us. There is no way, without a doubt, God is full of this faithful love and compassion It's a declaration of who God is, the God that we put our faith in, who God is. But at the same time, the the author is then declaring what God's character means for God's people. And the Hebrew translation of this is, Lord, we are not cut off. That even in our unfaithfulness, the unfaithfulness of humanity, however great or small, even in that sinfulness, even in the pain and the suffering of our real world, we can say with certainty, but Lord, we are not cut off from your steadfast love, from your great compassion. Although the Israelites, we read, were unfaithful from time to time, uh, God remained faithful to them. Although we fail from time to time, over and over and over again, God never fails us. Although life can seem to be dismal and just we're ready to give up on it from time to time and say, this, why am I going through this again? Why, why do these things keep happening? 
when we are in that moment, when we are in this deep depression that the author of Lamentation talks about, God has never failed. And because of that, we know that God will not fail today, tomorrow, or into eternity. But does just thinking this make everything instantly perfect? No, of course not. I wish it worked that way. But does it change the situation? No, of course not. But what it does is to serve as this reminder to us, a reminder to continue on, to keep breathing in and out, to keep living on to see another day, because the faithfulness of God will last forever. Much like the author of Lamentations, we find ourselves all too often in these circumstances that we didn't plan for, that we didn't want. But in these moments, we can rest in these few words of hope found in a book full of a lot of hopelessness, full of a lot of despair and shame. And in those moments when life feels rocky, when life feels like you're just at the rock bottom, I keep making these rock references, that was not on purpose. Um, when we feel like we are just at the end of our wit, we remember what these stories are telling us. We remember that we have, we can have a relationship with a faithful and a loving God. We can have hope in a God who is trustworthy, who is worthy of putting our trust in. And we can cling to this God who is unchanging, who is merciful throughout history. And it is exactly this idea that Thomas Obadiah Chisholm wrote about when he wrote these words for Great is Thy Faithfulness. We're going to take a few minutes to listen to that song, um, even though I'm sure a lot of us know it. So feel free to, to sit, to stand, to sing along, to just listen to the words, um, to, to keep on thinking about those stones of remembrance in your own life. And I would say, if, even if you feel so led, you can bring it up here and place it amongst these stones. Um, but I, what I want us to do here as we listen to this, and, and we'll do it again when we sing it, I want this to be a time when we just listen to the words. Let those words become our prayer, if, if we truly believe them. Let them become our prayer. Let them become an act of remembrance of God's faithfulness throughout our lives and throughout human history. So let's listen to this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
So great is thy faithfulness. We're going to walk through the song just real quick um, because there are, are real deep truths to this song. Verse 1 begins with this phrase, great is thy faithfulness, the, the name that it gets its title from. Um, and from there, this verse restates four different times that God is unchanging. There is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. That kind of harkens back to the passage in Lamentations, um, that certainly we have not been cut off from God's compassions. I mean, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. The God that we believe in does not change in character. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, But there is no growth that's needed. There's no changing or sin that God falls into that he needs to escape. And so we can sing this with great conviction, that great is thy faithfulness. Verse 2 then turns to... Um, God and and God's creation. It begins with um, a listing of the four seasons, summer, winter, springtime, harvest, fall. Um, And then it covers the three kind of astrological parts of the day, sun, moon, stars. And all of these things join, join with the rest of nature in being witnesses to God's great faithfulness and God's mercy and God's love. The full nature of the world that God created and called good, then turns around, turns its focus back to its creator, and says in return that God is good. And then verse 3 um, communicates kind of the gospel of Jesus and what, how that means something to us more than just um, now and also more than just eternity, but both. It's a both and. Um, again, kind of like we talked about last week. Um, this this everlasting life that is something um, in John three sixteen that we we have heard many times before 
Um, This everlasting life is something that doesn't just begin when we die. It's something that begins when we recognize right here, right now, the gospel of Jesus. God sent his son, Jesus, to come and to be that pardon for sin. Um, But God also sent his son, Jesus, to be that peace. To be the peace that goes with us throughout all of life. The presence of God, of the Holy Spirit in our lives, gives us joy and guidance for our lives. And one of my favorite lines from this song, um, if not my favorite, is strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. When we believe in Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection, we allow our, our lives to be transformed by that, by that truth, and, and something that we can sing out in songs like this. Our strength is no longer our own, but it's Christ in us. Our hope is no longer in ourselves or what we can accomplish or, or what other people can do, but it's in the one who gave his life for us, even while we were sinners. So it's in each of these verse ideas, God's unchanging nature, um, God's creation, worshiping him, and this everlasting life that we have through Christ. Um, It's through each of these that we can then sing this refrain, this chorus of great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. The words of lamentations renewed each and every morning, that compassion All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Whether we see it at the time or not, God provides us with all that we need. And this theme is is played out throughout scripture. And then as a bookend to this refrain, we find this phrase, great is thy faithfulness. Because as I hope that we have seen at some point or at every point today, that God is faithful. God is faithful to the Israelites as they um, escape Pharaoh God is faithful to them as they cross this Jordan River. God is faithful to them as they enter into this land that they had been promised. And God is even faithful when Jerusalem is destroyed, when their lives fall apart, and when they are sent into exile. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our circumstances. Perhaps as, as the writing of this song suggests, that God's faithfulness is even more important and more apparent when the circumstances of our life are not so great. Chisholm had endured the death of his mother and his own health issues and the need to change his career just one year after following God's call into ministry. And then William Runyon, the man who composed the music to this song, um, he was was a Methodist minister um, before going out as a traveling evangelist. And after 20 years of preaching, his voice just gave out. He said he went up to the pulpit one day and nothing came out. And shortly after that, he began to get progressively more and more deaf Um, And the doctors told him there's no cure. And a Methodist governing board then looked at at his situation um, and determined in in their terminology that he was not effective. And this this rather harsh-sounding title, um, it allowed him to have a decent um, disability pension. Um, But it, it left him feeling exhausted, useless, hopeless, defeated. And so for both of these men... This song comes out, it's it's a cry of their hearts. God's faithfulness is great, even in the face of overwhelming life tragedies, life hardships. It's a choice to remember who God is and how God has been faithful in the past. In the good times, in the bad times, in the times that seem impossible to overcome, 
As the author of Lamentation says, therefore I will wait. Therefore I have hope. And these stones of remembrance were exactly that for the people of Israel. Regardless of how the circumstances of their life seemed, they could look at this pile of rocks and remember that God had been faithful to them, to their ancestors, to all of God's people. And it is imperative in the life of a Christian to remember. Remember the faithfulness of God through the generations of family, friends, local church, church universal. The act of remembering is something that God's people have done throughout history. And it's something that Jesus even instructed his disciples to do in some of their final moments together. Um, the, the liturgy that we use to talk about communion reminds us of that. Communion, that communion is an act of remembrance. Remembering Christ's life, his suffering, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. And it is the foundation of our faith and a way in which we receive God's grace with knowledge, with thanksgiving of that work of Christ. And the opportunity to remember God's faithfulness through Christ is open to everyone. Um, you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a member of any church. All that is asked is that you remember what Christ has done for you through his life, his suffering, his death and resurrection. We are all invited to participate by coming to the table to be renewed in life and in salvation. We gather together as Christ followers around the world to confess this faith, this remembrance that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And we remember this together each and every time that we take communion. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he then took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we pray. Holy God, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. God, we live in that hope that he will come again and make all things new. We gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and in thanksgiving. God, would you pour out your spirit on us and on your gifts. By the power of the spirit, make them to be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one with the ministry of Christ to all the world, until Christ comes again in final victory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you, may it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance of what Christ has done for you and be thankful. And this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
shed for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance of what Christ has done for you and be thankful. As we sing this song, let's all remember God's faithfulness in our lives, in the lives of our friends and families, our local church, church around the world. We remember this morning how great is God's faithfulness.